You know, it's summertime, and uh, over the years of, of my ministry, summer sent, tended to be a time when you wanted to kick back a little bit, you wanted to relax, you wanted to refresh and renew and revive, and so uh, I oftentimes turn to the Psalms, and Psalms are great, they're refreshing, they're also challenging and convicting, and I think it, as we go to Psalms chapter 1 this morning, I trust that God will use it in your life in a special way to, yes, lift you up and encourage you. Hopefully, you'll be able to say, well, there's some things going on in my life, and this confirms my direction, and praise God for that. But maybe you see a few things that are getting off track a little bit, and God would use this to bring you back in line with his purpose for you. So we hope that Psalms 1 is enriching, and we hope that it is a blessing and it refreshes you. Maybe you have memorized Psalms 1. I hope so. My challenge to you this morning is if you have never memorized Psalm 1, do it this week. A whole chapter in one week. There's only six verses, and you get seven days. So a verse a day, and one follows right after the other. So it's not so difficult to do. Make a commitment to yourself. God, by your grace, I'm going to immerse myself in Psalms 1 and commit it to memory. It will enrich you. It really will. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the seat uh-huh. of sinners, <laughs> nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That is so crucial for us. To understand all that is entailed there. And we're going to talk about this and develop it a little bit. But I hope you get the idea that reading it over one time is not going to convince you of everything that's there. It's not going to open up the doors to everything that God has in store for you. Would you pray with me as we look at this passage? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of turning to it. The blessing of reading it, hearing it, knowing it, and by knowing it, understanding you and your nature and your character even better. So I pray that you would enrich our minds this morning by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalm begins with that phrase, blessed is the man. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a generic term. It's women, children. It's blessed is the person. All of us. Blessed, happy, contented, enriched. What is the person that is blessed? We really want to dig into that and find out how do I become that blessed, contented, happy person? We all want happiness, right? I mean, it amazes me that people want happiness more than almost anything else. In fact, we will go out of our way to justify actions based on happiness. Sometimes maybe you see your kid going down a path that you go, oh my goodness, that's not going to lead to good things. But you say, well, as long as they're... Really? Really? And yet we justify things by saying that, don't we? As long as they're happy, I'm happy. And do you think that's really what God wants? I don't think God is nearly as concerned about our happiness as he is with our holiness. Because you find out that happiness becomes a byproduct of holiness. Happiness is not the goal. Happiness is the byproduct. So we look for happiness in all the wrong places. We look for it in all the wrong things. And and we search for it and we strive for it. And we say, oh, if I could just find some contentment and some happiness, I would have a full life. 
So we look for it in things and in positions, and we want a better job, better position. We want more money. We want a new home. We want a new car. Sometimes it's in just simple momentary pleasures, and so we seek out those things that last for just brief moment. <laughs> Another piece of chocolate cake. <laughs> All a mode, of course. Uh, we want to maybe... Uh, a high through alcohol or drugs or sexual satisfaction. And so we look for all those things that don't bring happiness only for a mere moment. They're all temporary. So we look and we say, well, what is it? What about some lasting happiness, something that will make my life significant and count for something and really bring that sense of contentment? How is it that some people who seem to be in the worst circumstances of life claim to be the most happy, the most blessed, the most joyful? And I think as you get into Psalms chapter 1, you find that the person that God blesses, that happy person, we find out why it is that God blesses them, how we can be blessed, but we also find the person that God condemns. Well, that's a little frightening, That's a little negative, and we don't want to talk about negative things, do we? Something about the whole counsel of God's Word comes into play here, doesn't it? You know, we we love the God is love part, but we kind of want to ignore at least the God is just part. And yet that's the fulfillment of, of all that God is. So let's first look at the person that, that God blesses. Good, this is working. In in, in verses 1 to 3, we see, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree that is planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season. His leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does prospers. Well, that sounds euphoric. I want to be prosperous, amen? I don't want to wither and fade away. I want to have a life that stands for something, that counts for something, that accomplishes something of eternal value. The psalmist says that a person is blessed if he does not do certain things, and he is blessed instead if he does certain things. So let me just suggest in summary of this, and we'll get into it in detail, but the person who wants to be blessed must not walk down the road of those that rebel against God, those who have no fear of God, and those who consider themselves above God's law. There's a whole lot packed into those three little statements. Begin to think about the society and the culture that you live in, and think about what voice you listen to. And what voice you then follow in your actions and your thoughts and your worldview. No, if you want to be blessed to God, you need to be a person that walks lively, wisely in his relationship with God. Delighting and meditating on the word of God. Not following the counsel of the world, but following the counsel of the word of God. God created life, he designed life, he gave it life, he knows how best to operate that life, does he not? Hmm. That's what I heard. Hmm. (laughs) Well, again, verse 1. 
Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. So a person who is separated from the world will not walk in the counsel of the wicked. This is the person that God blesses, somebody who is separated from the world. He doesn't walk in the, in the counsel of the wicked. Walking. That's the path of life. It's where life takes us. I, I walk, I maneuver, I'm in motion, I'm going. And as I go, I avoid the counsel of the ungodly. Now I am not of the world, though I am in the world. We understand that, right? We have to function within the confines of the world in which we live. But we don't live our life like the rest of the world. The, the word wicked in the Hebrew here, it, it, the root idea means to be loose or unstable. That word carries two important ideas. The first means to be loose with your morals. That's ungodly, to be loose with your morals. To listen to the world and the world system and their counsel and say, well, it's okay to live with my boyfriend because we love each other. Oh, we're going to get married. That's the world's idea. And God says, no. That's to be loose with your morals. To watch things with your eyes. To feed your mind. Pornographic ideas is to be loose with your morals. But there's another connotation of this word, and it means to be loose from God. Hmm. Being without God as your anchor, without God as a controlling device, those who are controlled by their own desires, their own emotions, by their flesh, rather than the Word and the Holy Spirit that dwells within the believer. So we are to avoid the counsel of those who do not have God as their anchor. A lot of connotations to that, folks, isn't there? Have you been watching the news lately? We've got a Supreme Court who has cut the line to that anchor to God. I won't get all political on you, but I'm not talking politics. I'm talking Bible and biblical morality. Don't get your ideas for success and blessedness from a world that doesn't have God as its anchor. Don't you just love the evening news? You've got to turn it on every day at 5, every day at 11 or 10 or whatever time you turn it on. You're stuck to it. You've got to know what's going on because those are people without God as an anchor who are going to tell you how to live, right? Oh, quit meddling. The Bible has a lot to say how we should walk. You know how you should walk? i got a whole list of them. I think they're right there in your notes. Number one, we should ask God to show us how to walk. Psalms 143 says, teach me the way in which I should walk. So you want to know how to conduct your life? You want to know how to make right, godly decisions? Decisions that will benefit your life, benefit your family, and benefit your culture and society? Then you need to ask God. He's got a pretty good idea. We should walk in truth, Psalms 86.11 says. In truth? The Bible has a lot to say about truth, doesn't it? Put on the belt of truth. In other words, let that gird you up. Let that support you. Let that be your stamina. Jesus said, I am the way, the... and the life. Jesus is truth. So truth is far more than merely a concept... 
Truth is a person. Jesus is truth. It's his nature. It's his character. And we are to walk in truth, in reality. Uh, Ephesians 4, Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. You've been called. If, If you know Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, that means that God predestined you. He knew you before the foundation of the world, and you were chosen. He called you to be a part of his family. Walk worthy of that high calling. That's how we conduct ourselves and go about our business. And just one more, Galatians 5.16 says, walk by the Spirit. And it says, if you are walking by the Spirit with your mind and your heart connected to the Spirit of God, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You see, if you're doing things habitually and constantly and you find yourself caught in patterns of sinful thought, it tells me something. You're not walking according to the Spirit. You're not walking in tune with the Spirit. You haven't nurtured your relationship with God. The outflow of pushing God away and not giving attention to that relationship is you will fulfill the desires of the flesh. Don't be so desperate to seek the approval of the world that you bend your convictions. We're to ask God how to show us how to walk in truth, in love, according to His Spirit. Now, it's not easy to walk according to Scripture. It it takes discipline. It it takes a determination. Uh, It takes commitment. I, I think that's probably why Jesus took time at the beginning of each day. Early in the morning, before the sun, He arose and went to a private place. Remember? Time and again. Because he set his day in order because he knew what the day was going to bring to some degree. And so he asked God to give him the wisdom and the grace and the knowledge how to deal with each circumstance and each person that he was going to encounter. You kind of have an idea of what this week's going to hold, don't you? Not in total, but in general. And so you can go to God at the beginning of the week, at the beginning of the day, and set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. And set your mind according to the things of the Word and the Spirit in your life so that you, when you confront each of those circumstances, you have a resource. As you do that, the Holy Spirit will take over and He'll give you the ability to do what you couldn't do on your own. Something else I know, uh, God blesses the person that is separated from the world, a person that is not walking in the counsel of the wicked, but it's also a person that does not stand in the way of sinners. Now, you're going to notice that there's a progression here, right? You've heard that. We're walking, we're standing, and then we're sitting. There's a progression there. If I'm walking and I'm encountering somebody, hi, how you doing? Good to see you. Moving on. But now I stop and I say, hey, what's going on with this, that, and the other thing? And we stop and we stand and we talk and we interact. Hey, why don't you sit down and have a cup of coffee with me? Let's get into this thing deeper. And now I'm sit. I've sat. So there's a relational progression here, isn't there? There's a casual relationship with walking with sinners. The counsel of the ungodly. Now I'm standing, paying attention, engaging with it. And then when I've sat down, I have fully 
engaged, fully sat myself. And he says this person that wants to be blessed in all that he does is not going to stand in the way of sinners. He's not going to walk there. He's not going to stand there. The word sinners in Hebrew was an archery term. It meant to fall short of the mark. The mark is the will of God. Sin is the transgression of God's law. Any transgression. Uh, We're all sinners. We've all missed the mark. Romans 3.23, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If I put my archery target over there and I came back here and I shot my arrow and it went flying through the air but it fell right here, I missed the mark. Now, some of you can shoot your arrow very close. And some of us shoot our arrow and it falls right in front of us. But we both miss the mark, right, of God's perfection, God's will, His standard. And it doesn't matter how close you get to it. If you miss the mark, you've missed it. You ever stood at a chasm that didn't have a bridge and you thought, I wonder if I could jump that. Let you and me have a race. Let's see who gets the closest to the other side. Just doesn't matter, does it? If you miss the mark, you're dead. And that works physically, but it also works eternally, spiritually. You miss the mark of God's perfection, you're dead, condemned, separated from Him for all eternity, apart from His presence. The term here, well, because of that situation is why Christ came and He died on the cross, isn't it? Because we could never bridge the chasm. We could never hit the mark. And so Christ died on the cross, bearing our sins on His body so that we could take on His righteousness. He freely gives us His perfection so that when God looks at us, He sees Christ, Christ in me. I'm clothed in His righteousness. Now I have an ability to please God that I could not have on my own. So if you're struggling in sin and despair and questioning your relationship with God, this may be the place to start. Establishing that relationship with Jesus Christ that gives you access to the Father. Now, Let me get back to my passage here. The word sinners here, standing in the way of sinners, this is a reference to those who have deliberately chosen a path of of life, a path that is contrary to the will of God. The man of blessedness makes a conscious choice to direct his life by God's will. Don't stand with those who have consciously made a choice to stand against God's will. That seems so logical, doesn't it? And yet there are so many who stand out there. How should we stand? Well, Psalms 33.8 says, Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Are you standing with those who have a respect for God? Are you listening and communicating and engaging? And I mean as a lifestyle, as a, as a close personal relationship. I'm not talking about ignoring and shunning others. We need to engage others. But who are your closest confidants? Are they those who have an awe and respect of God, a holy fear of God? 1 Corinthians 16 says we should stand firm in our faith. 
how easy it is to, to sway our opinions because of the voice of somebody else who may be a little stronger in personality. Caught myself a few times on things like that and had to step back and say, hold it, what is my position biblically? Not because I'm attacking the person, but I have to hold firm my faith. That means I hold firm to my salvation, being confident of Him who called me, knowing that I am in Christ, not allowing circumstances to sway my confidence in Him, but it also means I hold fast to the truth of God's Word and not let the culture shift my mind. We also need, as Philippians 1 says, to stand together with one mind and spirit. It grieves my heart when I see people within the fellowship of a local assembly uh, creating division, building up uh, sides to create a consensus against another. God despises that. He condemns that. Most of us, to one degree or another, if you've been in church for very long, you've experienced some division. We need to guard against that with every, every ounce of strength that we have within our bodies. God says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. And Within the fellowship and the body of Christ, that is so critical. And I would say more and more as the day approaches, because the world is seeking to divide. The world wants to minimize the value and the effect of the church. Have you been reading about the Duger family? Sad, 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 but the world sees that as minimizing the value of the church. Don't be a part of creating division. Stand together with one mind and one spirit as the body of Christ. We're not to stand in the way of sinners. We're to stand in awe of God, firm in the faith, in unity with one another, And a person who is separated from the world does not sit in the seat of mockers. Uh, That word sit means to dwell. You've set up residence. You've stopped moving. You're remaining there. You're abiding there. It emphasizes a settled state or condition. And I'm afraid that this is the state of the majority of, of the church at large. Past Gallup polls have shown that there's very little difference, if any, between the church and the world in their conduct. Now, they're, they're, they're looking at the churches at large, all those who would be, quote, evangelical, and that's a broad swath, I, I understand. But look at your own life and your own church and you say, how do we stand differently than the community around us, than the culture that, that we live in? That word mockers is important for us to understand. It means to ridicule. And it refers to one who is actively engaged in putting down the things of God and His Word. Actively. Mocking can occur not only by the declaration of the Word. Just watch some late night TV sometime and you'll see plenty of that. It doesn't even have to be late night. uh, The sitcoms and whatever else. There's plenty of biblical mocking going on there. And he says, don't sit with that. Don't sit among those who mock God. It's blasphemy against Him. How do people mock the Word of God? Well, certainly by that blatant ridicule or rejection. I'm going to live my life. That old book has no relevance for me today. Holding and promoting ungodly ideals in the public square. 
could be abortion, could be homosexual marriage. We love those people, all of them. We want to bring them to faith in Christ so they can find and experience the love that He offers, the fulfillment and the contentment that they seek, the love that they so desperately desire. But don't sit with those people and make them your close confidants, ridiculing those who uphold righteousness. It's easy to point a finger as the church and say, look what they're doing. They're defying the word of God. But be careful because there's another very important aspect of this. You can listen to the word of God proclaimed, but then ignore it. And in essence, mock the word of God when you fail to obey it. God has spoken. What am I going to do with what he's told me? Do we believe this is the word of God? Inspired? Inerrant? Somebody say amen. Amen. Thank you. Good. (laughs) Wonder what Dave's been teaching. (laughs) If it is, then we need to obey it, right? We can't hear it and walk away and say, well, that was nice. Thanks, preach. That's mocking the word of God. How do we avoid these things? Well, the answer is in the next verse. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Do you see what he's done there? He's set up uh, the opposites. Here, here is the, the, the path of the wicked, the thought pattern of the wicked, those that deny God. But as opposed to that, we have the word of God. And when you find your delight, your satisfaction, your hunger right here, it, it puts that all to shame, and it brings contentment and joy and satisfaction and blessedness. There it is. In his law, he meditates day and night. So we see the person here that God blesses is one that is separated from the world and a person, secondly, who is saturated in the word. It's not one or the other. It's a culmination of all of these things. And I understand that there are steps that we have to go through as as human, as, as frail pieces of flesh that have not been perfected in the, in the fullness of our practice. In our position, we are perfect in God's sight, yet we still struggle with the flesh. And, and so we progress in this, but the more we progress, the more blessed we become. His delight is in the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is the object of the blessed person's delight. Do you love coming and hearing the word? learning more of the Word, understanding the the very character and nature of God. This is not something the blessed man has to do, but it is something he loves to do. Uh, There's some bright, college-bound young folks that were uh, asked some Bible knowledge questions. They didn't have a firm grasp on the Word, all right? (laughs) They were asked, who was Sodom and Gomorrah? They were lovers. (laughs) Not so far from the truth. The New Testament was written by Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. (laughs) Eve was created from an apple. Jesus was baptized by Moses. 
And I have to think, okay, what crazy things do we think or assume about the Word of God? What is it that we don't know? Let let me engage you just a little bit. Uh, Where is the Great Commission found? Matthew 12. What is the Great Commission? Go into all the world. Amen. Uh, Where is the beginning of the church? Acts? (laughs) Two. Uh, How about the Beatitudes? Very good. Matthew 5. The crucifixion, what books? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in all four of the Gospels, isn't it? How about the life of Christ? Where where is it found? In the New Testament, in the Gospels. Very good. Uh, Where are the wisdom books? Uh, What are the wisdom books? I thought you didn't speak in tongues. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastics, Song of Solomon. I, I think I heard a mix of most of all of those. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, and I have to admit, people come to me sometimes and, they, you know, you're a pastor, you know it all, right? So, pastor, I've been reading through such and such. What do you think about, and I go, oh, man, I haven't read that for five years. I haven't studied that. I don't know. Let me get back with you on that. So, in fairness, I know you didn't come prepared for a test, But it's important, and God says you don't have to be a theologian in all these areas, but we do need to be growing in our understanding of the Word of God. Our mind needs to be saturated in the Word. Our mind is a sponge. Treat it like one. Take it and wring it out from all the things of the the filth of the world and immerse it down in the bucket of God's Word and open it up so that it just fills up and becomes saturated with the Word of God. Begin to think the thoughts that God thinks. So that when you're confronted with the culture that is thinking non-biblical thoughts, you have a biblical response. How often we say, well, I just don't have time to read the Word. Back in World War II, Lieutenant General William Harrison was the most decorated soldier of the 30th Infantry Division. He received every decoration for valor except the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was, uh, received the Silver Cross, the Silver Star, Bronze Star, Purple Heart, one of few generals wounded in battle, in action. He was a soldier, soldier, led a very busy life, but was also an amazing man of the word. At 20 years old, went into West Point as a cadet, began reading the Old Testament through once a year, the New Testament four times a year. You know any 20-year-olds doing that today? Do you know any 40-year-olds doing that today? Do I need to get closer? (laughs) During, it was told during the battles when he couldn't read, they'd, after the battle they'd have time for R&R and he would use that time to catch up so at the end of the war he was right on target. In his law he meditates day and night. Meditate. I know that brings a connotations of Eastern mysticism and that's not biblical meditation. Any meditation that says empty your mind is of the devil. Let's say it outright. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation fills your mind activates your mind on the things of God. And it brings it up and over and mulls them over like a cow that's chewing her cud. And you understand some of that, the multiple stomachs or compartments that a cow will go out and chew some in the morning and then go sit under the tree and bring it up and chew it some more. And I know it sounds gross, but you get the picture. They're getting all the possible nutrients out of that that they possibly can. 
as they chew it and set it aside and then bring it back to chew it some more and then set it aside and then go back and chew it some more and do that with the Word of God. Do that with Psalms 1. And it will enrich your mind. Think about the instruction God has given us for life. Allow it to shape our thoughts and our actions. You can take the most simple passage in the Bible and it will begin to overflow with spiritual truth. Go to God's Word in prayer. Depend on the Holy Spirit and He will reveal so much to you, giving you direction for life. You know, I'm reminded of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and he defeated the prophets of Baal and he went up to the top of Mount Carmel and God told Elijah it was going to rain. You remember previously he said it's not going to rain and it didn't rain. And now God says it's going to rain. And so he sends out his, his servant and he says, go out and look towards the sea and see if you see a, a cloud because God said it's going to rain. And he went out there and he says, I don't see anything. And he said, well, go back and look again. And he goes back and looks. And I don't see anything. And time and time again, seven times he goes out. Finally he comes back and he says, I see a cloud the size of a hand. He had to have good eyesight, you know? I mean, that's kind of an average hand. He saw that cloud the size of a hand. That's the way it is with God's Word. You've got to go back more than once, more than twice, more than three times. Seven times through the passage, and finally you'll see a cloud the size of a hand before God opens up the skies and begins to dump his understanding and his blessing on you. Don't look lightly at Scripture. Meditate on it. Wait for the overflow of all that God has in store. God has no plan. He has no program by which you will grow and develop as a believer apart from his word. You can be as busy as you can be in every activity in the church but you will not grow in your spiritual walk if that's what all you're doing. You've got to be in the Word of God so that you have something to offer your family, your co-workers, your neighbors. They need you to be in the Word so that you have something to offer them. Let me move on kind of quickly here. The final one is God blesses the person situated by the waters. Verse 3 says, He's like a tree planted by the streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Uh, Being like a tree is a metaphor, all right? You're not just the nut that stood its ground, (laughs) became the oak tree, all right? Uh, But what does it picture for us? And I think just a number of of things. Uh, A tree has deep roots, and it's fed through those roots. That's usually what makes the tree sturdy. And when compared to like a tumbleweed, you know, you want those deep roots, stability, the capacity to withstand the storms of life. It also pictures the concept of growth over time. It takes time to produce that huge oak tree. It takes time to grow and mature in the Word of God. And just as the tree is dependent upon a source of supply of water, the spiritual life of the believer is also dependent on the supply of the things of God. The waters are situated by the Word of God and the Spirit of God giving us the wisdom and the understanding, teaching us through His Word. He's like a tree planted. This tree was planted. 
It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't just a, something that the birds dropped and it came up as a, as a volunteer or something. That word planted actually has the full connotation of transplanted. It's like it came out of a desert, dry, arid place and it was brought in and it was set in the rich, nutritious soil around the river where it could get all the full benefit to grow into all that God intended for it to be. And God has taken you, if you are in Christ, and he has transplanted you from the world. We were all in Adam, in sin. That's where we were born. Because of Adam, we have all sinned. And that's a dry, arid place. It's going to dry us up, and spiritually we will wither and we will die unless God transplants us into his Son, Jesus Christ. And we put our roots down in him. And we soak up all the rich nutrients of His Word as taught to us by His Spirit. That's the provision. That's the resource of life. It says it yields its fruit in its season. The blessed person is not only a tree that looks nice, but in spite of the conditions, it doesn't wither. It produces fruit. Are you producing fruit, spiritual fruit? Fruit that will last for eternity? This is a picture of being green and healthy in spite of the external conditions. There was a family named the Matthews that spent years in China. They were there, the last missionaries of the China Inland Mission to escape that country. They were not allowed to escape very early. They were under the communist rule for two years, during which time they lived in a single room with their little daughter. Their only furniture was a stool. They couldn't contact their friends for fear of getting them in trouble. They had a very small trickle of funds because most of it had been cut off by the government. Once a day, they lit their little stove to boil some rice for dinner, and they had collected the dung from the animals in the street from which to burn it. Those were dry times. But afterward, they wrote about their testimony of God's grace. They called the book Green Leaf in Drought Time. Maybe you've read it. Probably in your missionary biographies, in your your library, I trust. Those who delight in the Word do not wither, but instead they produce the Spirit's fruit. Whatever He does prospers. Does God really mean that? He prospers, health and wealth, amen? (laughs) Careful. I find it interesting that Scripture says that when our mind and our heart is in tune with God, we get what we ask. Because we're asking according to His will, according to His purpose, not according to my fleshly desires. So this doesn't mean I get to ask for whatever I want, and I'm going to be rich and healthy and beautiful and... No. My mind and my heart is in tune with God, and God says, pray for this, and I pray for that, and God answers that prayer. It's not a blank check to be filled in as we want, because we seek God's will. This is the one who is delighting and meditating on God's word, so he knows God's heart and God's mind, and is responsive to it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this next passage, but we do need to briefly address the person that God judges. Verse 4 and 5, all this that we've just said, not so for the wicked. Great 
picture of contrast, isn't it? Everything he does prospers, he grows, he's fruitful, but not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. You understand that in Palestine, they would go up on a hill and dig out a a bit of a pan-type trough and build up the edges, and they would go take the wheat up there and pound it and roll over it with the animals and logs and things to break up the, the chaff. And then they'd take the fork and throw it high in the air and the wind would take away the chaff while the the grain would drop back down to collect to make their, their food. The wicked are like the chaff. They are worthless and it's burned up. It's a picture of a futile, pointless life. Empty, worthless, godless. It's also a picture of their future judgment. Matthew 3, verse 12 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And I think, oh, if the ungodly could read this and understand this, the reality and the severity of it, if God's people would grasp this in its fullness, what a difference we could make in the world. Amen? The ungodly can't see it, they can't understand it, they won't listen to it because the things of God are foolishness to them. But it doesn't make them any less true because God's word is inerrant, it is true in every word. You know, they say the religious people don't have any fun. The world says go out and have fun. And if it's fun, do more of it. If it makes you feel good, that's okay. Because all that matters is being happy. In Eden, the devil told Eve that if she disobeyed God by eating the forbidden fruit, her eyes would be opened and she would be like God, knowing good and evil. But what really happened in that picture? She did not become like God. She became more like Satan. She already knew good and now she knew evil. Don't follow the world when it tries to draw you from righteous living. Because, as our verse here says, unbelievers will face God's judgment. They will not be able to stand its test. Only those who have the robe of Christ's righteousness because of their faith in Him can stand before God's throne. As a result of God's judgment, sinners, those without the righteousness of Christ, will be excluded from the eternal blessings of God's presence. So, in the end, there's really only two ways to choose. One or the other. There's really no third choice. Verse 6 says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the destiny of two groups of people. Proverbs uh, 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. That's the way of the wicked. That's one way you can choose. And that's the outcome. See, when it's spelled out that plainly, pretty easy to choose, isn't it? But life doesn't present itself that way, does it? It looks very appealing, and you think you've got time, and you say, well, I'll get to it later. We don't have a guarantee of tomorrow. Just ask three firefighters this last week who had ambitions, dreams, purpose, 
you hear their stories. They're headed back to school next week. They're going back to relationships. They're going back to... No, they're not. They're facing eternity. We don't get to choose that day. I, I, I did... The, the way of the righteous here is the way of Christ Jesus. He describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. But I want you to notice something in this verse, very important. It says, the Lord watches over the righteous and excuse me it does not say that the lord watches over the righteous and punishes the wicked it says the lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish and i have to look at that and i say well why the emphasis on the way of the righteous the way of the wicked rather than the person themselves and i think the answer is simple, and yet it's profound, because mankind is blessed or condemned on the basis of one decision, the way in which you choose to walk. You want to be a blessed person? You see, there's only two ways to choose, and every person is on one path or another, and you get to choose one path or another. And just because you're on one path doesn't mean you stay on that path. It becomes a daily choice, just like the Apostle Paul who said, I die daily. Die what? To his self, to his passions, his desires. And he submits himself to the will of God moment by moment. The blessings others will obtain are the results of their decisions to walk in the way of righteousness. Matthew 7 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. God doesn't show favorites. He blesses some, and He condemns others on the basis of the way in which they choose to walk. Psalm 1 tells us that there is blessing if you follow the way of the righteous, which involves Avoiding worldly wisdom, worldly actions, worldly uh, pursuits. Instead, pursuing intimacy with God through His Word. If you desire blessing of God, then you simply need to walk in His way. Are you on His path? Are you following His purpose? Is His Spirit dwelling within you? Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Let me invite you to bow your heads with us as we close. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for its instruction. Thank you for the truth that it offers us and the choices it gives us to help define for us how to receive blessing in life. And I recognize as we are here in these moments with your heads bowed and eyes closed that we've presented some bold and perhaps blunt truths, but maybe God has spoken to you in the midst of that. I would just give you an opportunity to respond to Him. Do you know Him as your Lord and Savior? Can you point to a time in your life when you confessed your sin before a holy God and received Him into your life? If not, you can do that right where you are right, right now. You don't have to go do something. You don't have to pay for anything. You simply acknowledge in your heart before God, saying, God, I understand that 
I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you, as all people are. But I understand that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin and to give me his righteousness. And I receive that right now. Maybe you've been a believer for some time, but you are evaluating the path that you are currently on, and you're saying, well, I don't think this is pleasing to God. I don't think I'm walking with the righteous. I have taken some opinions and some direction from my culture, rather from the Word of God, and I need to get back in line with His thinking. Would you tell Him that right now? Would you give Him permission to cleanse those thoughts, to cleanse those intents and desires, and ask Him for His grace by immersing your mind in His Word to purify your thought, thought patterns and your conduct of life. Father, use your word in a mighty way before us today. May your spirit be so free and may we be pliable, responsive and humble before him so that we would receive your blessing and we would bring great glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.